0: And hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at Amazon.com slash Instant Eraser Foundation.
1: Welcome to the ID10T podcast number 1129. Hey, if you're a Walking Dead fan, um, then it might be relevant to your interest to know that uh, the Walking Dead Season 11 preview special will be live August 15th, we'll be back in our old studio that we haven't been in <laughs> in, like, a year and a half. You know, the, the the Talking Dead set looks like, like, oh, it's, oh, it's my loft apartment, and, uh, but it's obviously, it's a television set, but we have for the last year and a half been... Doing the show actually from my house So it'll be really amazing to get back into the studio Be live again, again that's August 15th And then the following week, August 22nd uh, We'll be back with the Walking Dead Season 11 premiere Followed by a live, all new Talking Dead So uh, that is all the Walking Dead news for right now Let's talk about you, the ID10T community events at ID10T.com Like Ruben who writes Hey big fan of the show, Um, y'all are the big reason I was inspired to take action and do this thing I was so impacted by what's going on right now with the near extinct vaquita porpoise. There are only 10 or less that exist in the world. Uh, throughout the beginning of the pandemic till now, my girlfriend Shayla and I illustrated and wrote a children's book to help bring awareness to the situation of the vaquita. They are the most endangered marine mammal in the world and are getting caught in nets uh, in at, at sea from illegal poaching. We started a Kickstarter to raise just enough to actually print our book, get it into the hands of readers and pledgers, and we'll be donating the remaining copies to libraries around the world. It will be a beautiful hardbound book made with quality. Please help us spread the word. Um, to, so if you go to the, if you go to Kickstarter, you can type in Chiquita the Vaquita uh, in the Kickstarter search bar and you'll find it anything and everything is appreciated. Thank you. Ruben, thank you so much for sharing um, events at ID10T.com. For anyone else who has a thing that they would like to share or promote, this episode is Matt Damon, uh, who's promoting Stillwater, which is in theaters today, the release of the podcast, July 30th, um, and and this was such a wonderful conversation. I'd never met Matt Damon before, I didn't know what to expect, and I was so delighted by the conversation. It's so nice to see that, you know, people, especially on this level, literally like one of the highest grossing box office um, performers in the world so down to earth, so funny, warm, friendly, and, uh, also love up comedy. Like we had a really great talk about, uh, up comedy as well. So this was just an absolute pleasure, uh, to talk with Matt and, and I really, really, really appreciated, uh, the hour that he took to sit down and have a chat. So here's the ID10T podcast number 1129 with Mr. Matt Damon as we roll the thing. What a nice background. What, is, what, what, is, what are all the plants in jars behind your head? I have no
2: idea. I'm at the one hotel in Brooklyn, and I think it's kind of a hipster joint. And so this <laughs> is like, it's like you get the sense there was like artisanal something in those jars. And now they're now they're being repurposed, you know, for to put plants in because we yeah. don't have anything away
1: plants and local honey and exactly yeah whatever whatever it is Uh, 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 friendship beads like any kind of uh, (laughs) local beadwork is good is today like a are you today just like a big long press day
2: yeah i mean uh yeah some of these longer form interviews which i really prefer because um they're just they're just so much more natural than the the four minute ones like you know yeah. we'll, we'll, i did a day you know last week where i had 60 of those in one day where it's oh just, my god my, my record is 96 for the That's rain pretty record. sweet yeah yeah danny devito said it was the most you'd ever seen we did 90 so we all did the, the whole cast like we'd rotated through, and we did ninety six interviews in one day. It was like I would
1: imagine by like sixty, you don't know what who you are anymore. You don't know what words mean anymore, and you still have like thirty six to go.
2: It gets so bad that you don't in the in those in those blitzing four minute ones that you have time to say basically like four things. Yeah. and you're kind of on a script at that point. And you yeah. don't know if you've said the thing to someone you've only been talking to for two minutes. You don't remember <laughs> what you've said and you only have four things to tell them. And you don't remember which ones you've said to them yet. It's really, yeah. it's, you know, and you're like, Oh man, I don't, I don't, I don't know what I've said.
1: It's nice that it, that it, it turns into a game show lightning round. You're like, ah, uh, ah, uh, what movie am I working on? Shit. Oh uh, fuck. What is yeah. that? Oh shit. Who, who am I? Yeah. I think, <laughs> I think uh, the the only thing that I have the, the thing that I have really have to compare to that is doing stand up, having done a third show in a night, starting a bit and sort of feeling the air get sucked out of the room, and then stopping, and going, "Wait, did I already do this bit during this show?" And the audience goes, "Yes," and, Stop and it. you're like, oh, "Has that yeah. really happened to you?" Oh yeah, 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 totally. Because you just you can't is like when you're talking for hours your brains when you start kind of going into an autopilot sometimes. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, energy. Yeah. But your stuff
2: normally has a, it's almost built out like a, like a play, like a theater play or a screenplay. I mean, it, it, it normally has that structure, right? Like you're not, you're not randomly. Like I know I've talked to Tom Papa about it. Like he'll say, he'll try new stuff. He's got stuff that he knows kills and then he'll work new stuff in because I'm I'm fascinated by this exact process that you guys okay. go through, and when I was writing Goodwill Hunting, at night I didn't have anything to do, and I would go to the improv, and oh. I would I would sit there, and I and I would go every night of the week, so I'd go Monday through Saturday, and and Monday night sometimes it was just me and one other person in the in the place back then it it was oh, yeah. just dead quiet, and I would sit there because it was inspiring to me to watch, you know, usually people around my age, I was like 20, 24, 25 writing, you know, like I was writing all day and then they, and I'd come and watch them write at night. But I, it struck me as the bravest thing in the world. Cause you're writing in front of an audience. And the only way that you can write what you need to write is to fail. Right. Cause that's the only place, you know, where the edges and boundaries are is you got to fall on your face. And I was like fascinated by that. I, and yeah, anyway, so that
1: process. No, I mean, I love this conversation already because I love the peering over the fence to the neighbor's house to see like, how do they, because to your point, yes, you are writing on stage. You do form a relationship with the audience. You need the audience to sort of let you know if it's working or not. I don't know if stand-up is as much a brave thing it is as it is a compulsion to, mm-hmm. you know, to mm-hmm. gain the immediate attention of strangers. But... I will say the thing that to me seems easier than what you do is, so you're writing Goodwill Hunting all day. You have no idea how this film is going to turn out. You have, there's so many things that have to go right that you're not going to know for probably two years, you know, and then retrospectively you'll be able to go, ah, I mean, obviously in that case it worked out brilliantly, but you have to wait to find out like what the reactions are, what the results are so that, You know, wouldn't you say that so that you can then apply that to the next problem? Here's what we learned this project. Let's do this the next time.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But, but we're not, I mean, you're going in knowing like I'd see, you know, guys are showing up and women are showing up with their notebooks. Yeah. Like literally reading out of their notebooks, like, and, and you're going, there's no way there's no way the audience isn't going to see this for what it is, which is a, which is a, which is a test run for, and that's what, that's what was so fascinating to me, right. was the Monday to Saturday thing. I'd go every night and I'd watch these people who were my age build, build their five minutes, like, or their 10 minutes and, and then crush on Saturday, you know, and Friday and Saturday, that place was heaving with people you know the audience was they everyone was there wanting to laugh wanting to be entertained and these people were sharp and they would get up and they crush and i'd be like that is is like the most inspiring thing <laughs> but like to know that those monday tuesday and wednesday you know that 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 the ungainliness of that and the and 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 knowing that you're gonna fail um, yeah
1: well but but that's an interesting point too because it sort of depends on like And I think this applies to any kind of artistic endeavor, like what is failure and how do we define it? And if if your goal is just to get up on stage and say it out loud, which is what you need to do sometimes, then you've succeeded even though like the, the audience reaction seems to be the main goal for the main barometer for success most of the time, but sometimes it isn't. And sometimes Mm. you just got to say it out loud. And if you say it out loud, then you kind of feel the beats of it, even with two people. But I just think if you're if you're honest with the audience, go, look, I'm working on new stuff. And so back to my the earlier thing about how do you say a bit that you don't remember that you already said in a set, my set is like partially like 40% of it or so is I riff with the audience and then I weave in and out of bits. So there's not as much of a structure. So it's easy... If I'm not really paying attention, I can get lost and go, oh, fuck, I already, oh, but it's fine because, and let's weave this back into what you do because I I think those moments where those happen, those mistakes or when two people show up are some of the best moments because those accidents create real authentic moments. Sure. And that's where the community kind of comes together and goes, oh, we were all in this together. As long as you acknowledge it and you're not bothered by it, at least outwardly, it can work. So Do you see a parallel with what you do, these kinds of happy accidents or like the the avoidance of perfectionism, which I think can be the enemy of art?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we look for those accidents. I mean, because that is exactly when those real things happen and, um, you know, precisely at the moments that you don't expect and you haven't planned for. So, yeah, without a doubt, we're 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 doing that, too. Um, I just I I just remember I, you know, just to go back to that, like, like. that's a really interesting that you say Your what's your definition of success right because for so many people the act of standing in front of a group of strangers and trying to make them laugh is itself so terrifying right but if you're if you're looking at that as no, this is just monday night and it's part of my process and 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 my goal is to is to build a funny act then then yeah i guess the i guess you know it's it's a very it's a different way to approach i just I just, as as a young writer, was like, I just, I just found it. It just struck me as incredibly brave. And the other thing about it, the other thing about it, I was talking to, not to name drop, but I I was having a conversation with Edge. This is years ago, and we were talking about writing in general. He was talking about songwriting. I was talking about screenwriting. And he said something really interesting. He goes, he goes, I think stand up comedians have it the hardest. Uh, He said, he said, I go out. He goes, if 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 we go play somewhere. I have to play where the streets have no name. He goes, I have. (laughs) And he's right, they do, by the
1: way, they do. They do, and they do. And he
2: goes, people will be mad if we don't play streets. And I'm like, that's true. I would be furious if I went to one of your (laughs) content. He goes, we wrote that song, you know, 30, 40 years ago. And he goes, these comedians with, with a joke, they can tell it once and then they can never tell it again. You cannot tell a person the same joke.
1: <laughs> it's because jokes are magic tricks. Like once you have the reveal, the surprise element is over, you know, when, it, when they when you two goes out on stage and he, they start playing that. Burr, 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 yeah. burr, 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 burr. and then like you don't go on stage as a comedian and go what's up with farts and hear a swell right. of recognition <laughs> applause you know what i mean right. like he's gonna do the farts thing <laughs> oh my god it's the fucking best i can't believe you know and so
2: <laughs> but yeah. that's what that but that means like what to what is the point he was making was just the amount of material you guys have to generate yeah right yeah, yeah. i'm I, yeah. you know over your lives is insane it's insane because it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's, you know, and and that was what I was having the conversation with Tom Papa about was how do you do it at your level? Like, and he's, and he was talking about having stuff that he knew killed, right. That he could do in front of an audience and, and working in the new stuff, right. Like, like taking, all right, get them going, get them, get them happy. And then now I'm going to walk down this path and I'm going to, I'm going to, see where I go. And he goes, and, and if I would start to lose them, I could venture back into material that I had. That was, I was like, that's really process wise, really interesting to me because that makes total sense. Uh, it's still yep. terrifying, a terrifying proposition to me, but you,
1: you yeah, you bookend it with a list stuff so that you have like a safe zone. So you don't lose the audience so much, but honestly, if you, if you don't sweat it too much, because you know, for all intents and purposes, the audience is looking to you to, to sort of be the the leader of the room. And if they feel like you can't handle that, then they'll turn on you. You know, it's like, well, right. why did I come out for someone who can't, but if you don't sweat it too much and you just kind of like, then they'll forget it. Like they'll, then you move on quickly and it's, you know, then it's totally fine. But, um, you know, it's not, it's not that for those Monday or Tuesday shows where there's only a couple people in the room or you don't have a good set that you don't, <laughs> I mean, you feel bad about it, but it's just what you do with it. And also do you find that, you can uh, you can do everything that you can do as long as you did what you set out to do. Even if the audience doesn't always like react with you know thunderous applause or laughs, you can feel okay about it. I feel like the times that you can really beat yourself up are when even if you have like a good set or a good movie or a good script or whatever is if you feel like you didn't do everything that you were supposed to do, if you drop the ball, even if the audience doesn't know it, you still feel weird about that too. Does that make sense?
2: Sure. Sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, especially the more experience you have, the more, you know, like I feel that way about this movie. Like I, you know, there was someone who wrote a bad review of the acting in this movie in one of the British papers and someone asked me about it and I said, we just disagree about what good acting is, you yeah. know, like, like I'm just at the level and like, he, he's welcome to his opinion. Like I'm not at the level where I need his validation anymore. Exactly. I, I, I'm, I know a lot about this and I'll put my group <laughs> of friends up against his group of friends, you know, and <laughs> you know, if you want to talk about what, you know, but, but everybody's entitled to their opinion. And, and and I genuinely am at peace with whatever anybody thinks. I feel great about like the feeling I have after this performance is like what I'm chasing for the rest of my life. Like I'm 50 now. I have done this for more of my life than I haven't. And, uh, and, and I still love it. I really love it. And I, and I geek out over the process and I, I love every st- stage of you know production. I, I, I just love it. And I love acting. And, um, and, and it's, and it's a great career, but both of us are in our respective careers. Like we get to get better at it. You know, as we get older and there there's so many careers in which, you know, you know, I'm like athletes I've talked to who are like 35 years old and they're done. And it's like they know so much more about the thing that they're great at, but their body can't won't allow them to do it anymore. And we get to right. keep keep going. And it's just and I feel so lucky that, uh, you know, but but the feeling that I'm chasing is that feeling of just, yeah, I, I it's it's exactly what you're saying. It's like. I'm completely at peace because I know what I was trying to do and I did it.
3: With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com podcast and use code WONDERY to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details.
1: And and, and by the way, you know, this idea of being at peace with yourself... I think is probably the most important journey we as human beings like one of the most important personal journeys that I think people face because I'm sure you have friends who are also like huge box office grossing stars and still never feel complete or whole or peaceful whatever and there is this you know it's I I, I think it's called the hedonic hamster wheel where it's like you keep setting a baseline oh if I just get this if I just get this and then you get it and it's like fuck still don't feel, you know, because you're constantly searching for this e- external validation. And we both work in a business that is so heavily focused on external validation. Yeah. And so how do we not fall prey to that? And how do we, you know, how did you find that path where you realize like, hey, you know, people totally entitled their opinions doesn't affect me. I'm here to do what I do. I'm happy with that and peaceful with that. Do, did you always feel that way? Or did you have to arrive at that? No, I think I arrived at it. I think one thing that really helped me,
2: really helped me was was I had this moment that I've talked about before Um, the, the night that that uh, that Ben and I won the Oscar in 1998. I was sitting there at home. It was like four in the morning and I was still kind of buzzing. My girlfriend at the time had gone to sleep and I was still kind of buzzing and I couldn't sleep, you know, and I was just sitting there and I was alone with this thing, this, this Academy <laughs> Award. And I, and I had this like voice coming, like, it was like, I almost saw a parallel life in which I lived into my eighties without getting this and was chasing it. And it was like this weird moment. And, and, and like a voice in my head said loud and clear, thank God I didn't fuck anybody over for this. Right. And, and it was like, I got a glimpse. It's like, I got this monkey off my back at 27 years old. I don't ever want to, you know what I mean? Like I'm good. You know what I mean? Like I don't have to, I don't have to chase it. I don't have to worry about it. And I didn't hurt anybody to get this. And um,
1: that is, that is a really excellent point. And, and also, you know, just out of curiosity from what you can remember, the difference between your expectation of that moment and then the reality of the moment, because it's so easy to idealize moments because we just think about them from one you know, as basically like one dimension, I'll win this thing and it'll be the greatest thing ever you know like i was I was talking to someone earlier today about how life is really kind of like a a Super Mario game where you know <laughs> each level and you're like, I got through this level and it unlocks a whole other series of you know monsters and villains and challenges, and even when you complete that game, then there's another Mario game you gotta play and so <laughs> what what was the the sort of the expectation of that moment versus like the, the actual human reality of the moment. Do you remember that? Well
2: the, the human reality was it was first of all so surreal. And also our lives were changing at exactly this. and we were we were becoming famous, mm-hmm. you know, at exactly this time. And and that's a real mind fuck because your life, your world changes, your subjective reality changes. It's like somebody rewrites your code in the matrix mm-hmm. and, 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 and but only yours. So, you know, that in intellectual terms, the bigger issues are still the bigger issues, mm-hmm. you know, global warming, whatever it is, climate change, like you, all that stuff is still the same, but your reality will never, ever be the same. And that's a real, it's hard to wrap your brain around that. And, and so the, so I, my recollection of that Oscar experience was—I remember saying to Sam Mendes a couple of years later when he got hit his—he said, "When is this going to sink in?" And I said, "About a year and a half." And I saw him a couple <laughs> years later, and he said, "You were exactly right. It was like 18 months before I realized this happened. Like it doesn't—it didn't feel like it was happening. It was like it was—it was, it was just—it was nuts. It was just too much. To things were just changing too rapidly and in such a surreal way that it was—it it was more than my brain could." could kind of, uh, understand.
1: Yeah. Because we're about the same age. And I remember, I remember that meteoric, I mean, it may not have seemed meteoric to you because I know you worked for like 11 years before that, you know, it's like you had this career before that happened, but then all of a sudden, you know, I, I I don't know why I have this vivid memory of, I want to say it was like, you on the cover of maybe Vanity Fair, like in a bathtub with a toothbrush in your, it was some kind of like, who's this young whippersnapper? Who does this guy think he is? And then of course I saw the movie. I was like, fuck, this movie's really good. (laughs) And, uh, and, and, and and I feel like that ushered in sort of the, a, a, not like it hadn't happened before, but it seemed to usher in at least for our generation, this era of writer performers, you know, it's like, You don't have to be just an actor. You can write, you can create, you can produce, and also be in those things as well. And so, you know, remembering that and sort of, I I was creatively inspired by that because I was like, oh yeah, that's a thing you can do. You don't just have to go to auditions and wait for someone to go, okay, you, you seem cool enough, get in this thing, you know? Like, that which is so part of what our culture is now, it seems like we take it for granted. Like, oh yeah, you are some, you should be a writer, creator, and a performer. But at yeah. the time, did that feel like a like a departure? Did it seem like a crazy thing for two actors to like? God, oh, can we really write this big movie? Like, what what was your thinking process about? That? Yeah, well, well,
2: you know, it should be said it would have been entirely crazy had it not been for, for Sylvester Stallone. Sylvester Stallone had done it with with Rocky. Right. And um, and that was our that's that was our the two words, we, you know, whenever we got up against the wall, we would say Sylvester Stallone to one another because because he did it. And and every time that people said, you can't do this, we would say Sylvester Stallone, he did it. So the, so he laid the path for us to say, we're attaching ourselves to this. Cause that's what we want. Like we were actors, you know, we, we wrote kind of as a way to get jobs as actors. Mm -hmm. And so we wrote to our strengths, the roles that we thought we could do really well. And, um, and, and, and then attached ourselves to it. And, you know, it was a great feat of agenting by Patrick Weitzel, our agent. You know, who we've, I've been with for uh, almost thirty years now, and and but he he very much kind of made his bones on that movie too, because when the movie came out, everyone went, "How the hell did that happen? Like, what agent put this together?" And it was our young agent Patrick, you know, who was like smoke and mirrors, like you know, was like, "Well, they're giving me this deal over here." You you know what I mean? Like everyone realized the you know incredible feat of agenting that must have gone into it, and. That really, that, so we all kind of launched with with that, but it was we were stubborn because we had seen an example of it, and that was Sylvester Stallone.
1: And did you? What specifically did you study at Harvard? Was it? Did you study theater at Harvard? Was that? Was, was
2: no? They don't really have a the, they didn't have a theater concentration. Then it was English um, that I that I you could do a special concentration, but uh, which is kind of design your own major. But uh, yeah. I, I I just did English. I was in English and
1: in they- literature. And you left, did you, you, do you leave school to work?
2: Yeah, I would leave. I left my sophomore year for a semester. I left my junior year, I think for a semester I would leave. If I, if I got a job, I was auditioning throughout college. So I'd stay in college, but if I got a part, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd, I'd go do it. Um, I mean,
1: even sort of hearing about how this all, how this all worked and how your agent kind of uh, (laughs) did this, this dazzling uh, magic act it's still knowing what the film business was like in the nineties, which was very before. Now, I think we're sort of in the, in, in a, in a niche content culture, right. Where it's like, you don't, you don't necessarily need 20 million people to watch a thing. You just need a very passionate, concentrated audience to watch a thing. But even at that time, it really is, it really is unheard of. And you referenced Sylvester Stallone, but that was 20 over 20 years previous to when you guys Right. Did this. Right. So as you were going along, as you're writing and saying like Sylvester Stallone, Sylvester Stallone, how many points along the process did it seem like ah, this is this is never going to happen? How would this happen? This is never going to happen.
2: Yeah, I mean, we it 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 felt like a like certainly like a pipe dream. I mean, it felt crazy. But but then, you know, Patrick somehow engineered this bidding war. And I remember it was between a Monday and a Thursday that we sold that script that we took it out on a Monday morning and Thursday evening. We sold, we, 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 we had this deal with us attached. I mean, the ironclad, like in a contract, like we, you cannot separate these two knuckleheads from this script. And, um, and, and it was over the course of four days. And I, it was just amazing. It was amazing how much our lives changed in a week. Ben was living on my couch. He had, he had literally, uh, it was another friend of ours from high school and I were living together and Ben hadn't come and gotten on the lease with us because he was going to marry this girl. And then that flamed out within like a month. And so he showed up with all of his shit in our little, in our little uh, like place on Curson street, Curson and Melrose. And like it was a two bedroom apartment. And we're like, dude, we don't have room. You said you weren't living with us, you, you know. So he was on on the couch and he's six, four. And like the couch was probably six feet. So I'd go in the living room and his legs would be dangling off the couch and all of his shit was all over the living room, you know, suitcases with his stuff. You know, he had nowhere to go. And uh, and literally from there, we so we sold the script Um, and and from a Monday and a Thursday. And we literally we went around. We had such shitty credit and so little money. That when we went to we went to move out immediately from that place because we're like, dude, we got to get a three bedroom. Like you need your
1: <laughs> <own> room <We laughs> with go, a tall bed. <laughs> we yeah, with a real bed.
2: We went around and and we had it was on the front page of Daily Variety that we that Ben and that we sold this screenplay and our pictures were on the front page of Daily Variety in November of 1994, and we went and bought all these copies of it. And we would go to these uh, houses and because people would say, you have no credit and you have no money. And we go, but look. And we'd hold the things up. We'd be like, this is us. This is us. Like, look how much we sold this thing for. This is all. You know. And that literally was how we rented our apartment for that next year. That is a totally true story. Like, we literally showed them daily variety and and we had sold that script i'll never forget it was six hundred thousand dollars from oh being fucking broke and so ben and i suddenly each had three hundred thousand dollars well i mean before taxes but right but that's right that's what it said on the cover of variety and you know and we were like we can afford rent um we'll, you know we'll pay we'll
1: pay up front yeah, I guess in uh, in Hollywood in the entertainment business, when they do a credit check, it's on IMDb. Like, look, see, it's like you can <laughs> see, like it's actual it's an actual credit that I'm getting this yeah. thing for. But you, but to have that kind of success um, so quickly, uh, a, a lot of people might have, like you said, been chasing that with each project, you know. But it seems like you were able to navigate. Pretty, you know, really well, and not just have this not have this kind of like one hit wonder syndrome, you know. And was that sort of you're able to take that success, but then how do you smush it out of the way to refocus and not get your head stuck in the clouds when all of a sudden you have three hundred thousand dollars and you're on Variety and you're doing this big movie with Robin Williams and you know everyone's talking about you. How do you pull your heads out of the clouds to just refocus and make it about the work?
2: Well, I mean it's a massively insecure business as you know like nobody has job security. So right. you can't nobody cares about the movie you made last year. You know what I mean? Literally nobody cares. And so and so I think that I think that just was clear to me just having been an observer of the business at that point like it's not it's there's no time to feel good about yourself like you're on to the next one and you really got to keep your eye on the ball. Um because if you make enough shitty movies you're done and it's and 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 i don't think there's any i mean it, it, you know the the phone stops ringing for everyone you know at one time or another and sometimes for good so so i was always just very aware of that you know i i never felt like oh i accomplished this so i don't ever have to worry anymore i mean it's like i'm that when the first time i met tom cruise i remember uh you know coming away from that conversation and saying to ben oh my God, like, he, he doesn't have job security. Like, the, and it was clear through the conversation, just the way he was thinking. He, it's not something he said, but it was clear to me. And I was like, there, is, there had never been a career at that point, and this is in the late 90s, that had only gone straight up. Like, in right. the history of movies, there had never been a career that had done what his did. And yet, like, he wasn't taking anything for granted. Like, and I, and I was like, wow, like that's, that's telling, you know, like that's really interesting. Um, like this business is brutal.
1: (laughs) Well, it is, but I think there's, there's probably also a, you know, uh, uh, to use a NASA a planetary term, like a Goldilocks zone where there's a healthy amount of fear because it keeps you motivated, right? but you don't want too much because then you make bad decisions or you make, you know, or, you, well, yeah, you know, it, it could, it, you, it could wind you up doing the worst thing, which is like protecting your beachhead.
2: Right? right. So that you don't, so that you don't make and you don't take any risks and you don't do anything interesting because you're just trying to do the thing you think people want to see. And That's another recipe for disaster. Yeah. And it's it's definitely a recipe for creative disaster, creative like simulation. right? It's just like, you, you just don't grow as a, as an artist if you do that.
1: So it's interesting you say that too, because I, I saw, I think maybe it was on Fallon where you were talking about, you were talking about Stillwater and you're like, look, this is not like a born supremacy identity, Liam Neeson type, you know, this is, you know, this guy does not go over to France and beat people up. Like it's a, you know, it's a very character driven drama, you know? And so because of the success of, you know, like the Bourne franchise, which is fucking awesome by the way, but did you ever during that process go, Oh, I don't, these are cool. And obviously I like doing them and they're fun for me, but I don't always want to be this guy. Was that a conscious decision?
2: Uh, no, I mean, I think those movies are their own thing. And when I'm that guy, I'm that guy. And that's what the audience wants to see. And that's what, you know, that's what, that's what I would want to see going to one of those movies, um, or going to one of those fucking awesome Liam Neeson movies. You know what I mean? Like, like, you know, when he's like, I have a very particular set of skills. You're like, fuck. Yeah, you do Liam. Go get him. You know, <laughs> fuck them up. See those skills. Yeah, damn, man. Um, but, uh, but no, I, 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 I felt like those movies, I always thought of them as as inoculating me from the business side of things, like having a knowing that I was going to go back and do a Bourne movie in two years meant that I could really take whatever movie I wanted in the interim and and, you know, a small part, a big part, you know, you know, push a little bit, do something more experimental, like whatever it was, I could I, I really felt like uh, free to kind of do what, what I wanted. And, and that was, which was a great feeling, um, because I wasn't, I wasn't worried. I wasn't trying to make some kind of strategic kind of plan as to how, how to survive in the business. I was just doing, doing the movies for all the right reasons.
1: I mean, just in terms of, and I'm asking this also, not only to find out how you navigated it, but also just for people who are making their own creative decisions. So it's sort of a, sort of a question and advice kind of a thing but this what is it that you're following obviously you have a lot of experience you know what you're doing but when you look at a project are you following creative inspiration gut oh this is probably a good thing to do is it like oh this is a challenging thing to do is it sort of an algorithm of all of those things what is kind of guiding you you know because obviously I'm sure you have a lot of choices about what you get to do next
2: yeah, well, but one thing I'd say to young actors, if you can choose the projects that you're in, or if you, you know, or to anybody who is is to go by director, that was always a really the, the the most important part of the equation for me. Um, but in terms of reading scripts, it's interesting you say gut. I, I was going to say yeah, gut, but gut is the product of having ri- written screenplays of having read. I don't know how many ten thousand screenplay i don't know how many i couldn't even guess as to how many screenplays i've read in my life um you know so so that's what informs your gut right if i read something and intuitively get a good feeling you know it's not just a hunch it's also from all the work i've done mm-hmm. reading scripts in my life so it's a really informed kind of gut choice but but generally if i feel compelled by something or like like you know if i'm moved by something like like this movie Stillwater. i felt just really moved by, like, I really believe the dynamics between the father and the daughter and the, and, and my character and, and, and Camille's character and her daughter, like, I just really believe those dynamics. And so, uh, you know, they felt real to me. And um, so it's, it's, it's gut on one level, but it's also, you know, I've been, I've been working hard for 30 something years to develop that gut.
1: Yeah. And again, you know, it sounds like you have a very healthy internal view of, you know because at a certain point you really do have to let it go you can't control whether no, people are going to right. see a movie you can't control there's a, most of it you can't control you can control what you do when you show up you can right. control your performance but that's kind of about it so are you pretty good at just releasing all of that into the air well that's the
2: reason to try to partner with the best director you can because they they control the most of what can be controlled And and if you're and if you're partnered with a good one, then more often than not, they're going to be making really good decisions. So it gives your movie a better chance of being good. Um, So, yeah, that's right. You know, that's definitely why I uh, uh, why I've
1: always thought that that's that if you're going to have any strategy, that that should be it. And you've worked with so many filmmakers and also with Project Greenlight. When you're talking to filmmakers and they come to you, they go. Matt Damon, what do I, what do I do? I'm a young filmmaker. I just want to, I just want to make a thing. I don't know. How do I, I don't know who I am. I don't know what my point of view is. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Having worked, having been so close to this process for so long and having the benefit of seeing so many filmmakers up close, what is, what is something that you notice that is very helpful for young uh, filmmakers when they're starting out? Like a couple of, you know, try thinking along these lines to sort of circumvent (laughs) a lot of, you know, mistakes that you might make when you start out. Well, the one thing I would say that,
2: that I would tell anybody is that I've worked, if you look at the list of directors I've worked with, it's pretty insane. And, um, and, and, but there's one thing that I find very interesting that they all have in common because everybody does it differently. Um, As Anthony Minghella once said to me, he said, we're all on an Island. Uh, we don't get to visit each other's islands. We, we're, we you know, we, we, we kind of run our own island and we don't, and, and he goes, that's why actors tend to make really good directors because they mm-hmm. can, they're going from island hopping and they can cherry pick from, you know, the way, the way people do things that work for them and, and, and put it into a process of their own. And, um, but But the what's really what I find fascinating is as different as all these directors are and their personalities are because your personality comes out when you direct it's just you're under so much pressure and and you're making so many decisions over such a long period of time you just you can't hide from the from Mm -hmm. that process and, um, and as different as all these people are the one thing that they have in common is that they listen really intently to the ideas. As Steven Soderbergh said, I want to throw the window open as wide as I can so that all of the ideas I'm bringing to him, all the ideas, his production designers might say this, you know, all of these ideas, they can come from anywhere. And an idea isn't, I heard uh, Bono in this documentary about 10 years ago was talking about songwriting with U2. And he said, in our hierarchy, the musician is really low. And the song is everything. And when a song walks into the room and that's how he put it, he said, when a song walks (laughs) into the room, you respect that. And like, you understand when a song walks into the room and, and ideas are like that. Creative ideas are like that. When someone has one, when an idea walks into the room and you're shooting, you are like, fuck me. I know that's like, go with that. You know what I mean? And, and that can all, it comes from anywhere. And um, the enemy of good work is ego. The absolute enemy, the enemy of everything, yeah. really, is ego. But the enemy a thousand of thousand percent collaboration, like that, that the enemy is ego. It's like it's get over yourself, and and you know Ben, Ben always said to me when we started writing Goodwill Hunting, which it was a very formal thing to say uh, for friends who were as close as we were but he kind of said it somewhat formally, which was, he said, judge me for how good my good ideas are, not for how bad my bad ideas are. (laughs) Such a great point. Such a great point because you got to get, you got to get, you you know, it's like when, sure, when you're writing jokes, you're barfing out all this stuff. It's like, it doesn't matter that 90% of it's not going to be usable. and You can't be embarrassed about what you have to go through to get to the good shit. You know right. what I mean? It's a huge part. You got to turn the fucking faucet on. You know what yeah. I mean? And that's a and that's a and that can be humiliating if you don't if you're writing with someone else because you're gonna say some stupid shit and you're gonna and and you're gonna have some bad ideas and you can't feel bad about that. You need to get through them to cycle through them because you never know what the other person's gonna pick up with and run. And 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 that's what writing with a partner is. It's it's the back and forth that ends like people used to ask us. Hey, who really wrote what, like in the, in your dialogue? I'm like, I don't fucking, that's an impossible (laughs) thing to answer. We wrote it together. Like every single line. Yeah. Every single line we wrote together. I said something, then he said something, or he said something, then I said something. And then, and then we got a line of dialogue out of it. Like it's, it's, we, neither of us could have done this alone. And that's the point. It only is through the collaboration that we got here and that's what movie making is right. It's just doing that with like 50 other
1: people. so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash
3: switch. $45 upfront for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Most weight loss plans are one size fits all. Not taking into account each person's individual needs. Noom takes into account dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs to build a plan that works for you. Everyone's journey is different. So your daily lessons are personalized to you and your goals. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your free trial today at Noom.com. That's n-o-o-m.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
1: Yeah, but keeping everyone in the same, you know, like in the same sphere, so that everyone's kind of working toward the same goal. But what you're, I think what you're talking about is something that I, uh, that I, it's like, I'm not always great at remembering it, but it's being process oriented, as opposed to result oriented. And sort of like what we were right. talking about earlier with stand up and success and failure. But knowing that, like, yes, part of the process is that a lot of these ideas won't work, because you just have to, you just have to get the machine, you know, it's like, you just got to yeah. get it all working and, and just recognizing. And that's why it's so great to collaborate with people. Cause you have this unique chemistry, this chemical bond that is different with each person you collaborate with. Yeah. But that's it's right. so great to have that other person that goes, uh, you know, that you feel the safe zone of like, I trust what they're going to say. And they're not going to be like, this is the dumbest joke ever. Get the fuck out of my house, you know, and yeah. go, well, maybe not that, but how about this and having well, that I, freedom.
2: Yeah, and that's another thing I'd say too about writing with Ben is that we never ma- wasted a minute on diplomacy. Right? <laughs> we know each other so well and and when one of us has a bad idea, the other one is not shy about just instantly shutting it down and being like that sucks.
1: That's terrible. <laughs> and you're right? not
2: personalizing that. And you don't personalize it because like the the deep and profound respect that undergirds our friendship is not is never in question. Right? right. So he could say anything to me and it wouldn't really hurt my feelings. You know, right. what I mean? we well,
1: also know his goal isn't to hurt your feelings. The goal is for both of you to write the best thing that you can write.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And to go back to what we started on, I guess I think we're just touching on like that, that 90 percent or whatever that percentage is of kind of humiliatingly bad ideas. Ben and I once wrote we once got off on a jag where neither of us could see how bad it was. And it was a draft of Goodwill Hunting that we wrote that we literally were so proud of it. And we waited three days to read it because we were like, we got to get some distance, man. We got to get some distance. And it was so fucking bad that we literally, <laughs> we literally were embarrassed. I think we burned it and we erased it. We were like, this is the worst thing nobody can know that we wrote this nobody because you know (laughs) our families and friends had read drafts of the script at that point and we were like this this can't ever exist anywhere again um but like but that that, to to go back to the original point like when you have bad ideas like that at least we had them in that apartment and nobody ever saw it like nobody ever saw that draft but like you you've gone out and you know an audience has seen that draft of one of your you know it's like that's totally man that's fucking heavy
1: as far as i'm like that i don't know i think i think once you kind of get past the idea that the worst thing that can happen is that people won't laugh you know, like it. I mean, obviously, that's not the worst thing that happens. Someone could throw a bottle at you. You know, but but I mean, like in in general, someone could physically harm you because your writing yeah. is so offensive to them. Yeah. So you know, terrible. You, you 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 could have a joke that's so bad that someone could get up, hit you in the face with a chair, and stab you with the microphone stand. Finish your set and kill. Uh, and uh like that would be the worst not even you dying it's them it's them like just crushing yeah it's them killing you and then killing uh yeah. and it's like oh not only was this guy terrible but the the heckler was better and performed on his corpse like that like all those things you know but but once you kind of you know, once you're comfortable you know, with that yeah well i mean <laughs> but it but it's sort of like aversion therapy in a way you know and but i think especially with people with stand up, when they go, "Well, I'm thinking about doing stand-up, What do I do? Well, you got to get up and do it. And the best advice I ever heard was you got to do it a hundred times because you'll know after a hundred times, if you're compelled to do it again, because you can have a terrible set and hate yourself and never want to leave your apartment again. But some little thing inside you goes, I really want, I need to get on stage tomorrow. I just need to do it. Uh- and if you're not compelled to do that, then it's possible that it might not be the calling, you know, for you, because, you know, your art, you will do no matter what, you'll find a way to do it, no matter what. Would you say yeah. that that kind of yeah. works on the other end too?
2: Yes, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. In fact, that, in fact, the, the one thing I always say is I just tell people don't do it. They say, yeah. what should I do? I say, don't do it because everybody told me not to do it. Right you know i didn't you have did anyway. i mean yeah yeah i mean my parents were happy happy i was doing theater but not that i was doing it professionally uh trying to trying to get part they they you know so they they were encouraging they were wonderful supportive parents but they weren't pushing me out there to do it and um and everybody was like why are you gonna do that like that's you know that business it's terrible right it's brutal i go yeah yeah just yeah. but it was as you say it was a, it was a compulsion and. And, uh, I had to do it. And, um, you know, if it, it's, it's the equivalent of needing to get back up on stage after, you know, after the hundredth time, it's like, um, I never questioned that this was what I wanted, wanted to do. And if, and if, and if I could dissuade somebody from doing it just by saying that, then they're never going to do it anyway.
1: Yeah. Do you, it, it, uh, can I ask you some parenting advice? Cause my wife and I are in the process of yeah, trying to start a family and you've had kids for a while. You have four kids. And the thing, the reason I thought to ask this, because you just said, like, oh, my parents, they were supportive, but they, you know, they were hesitant about pursuit. And it's probably just because they love you and they didn't want you to have a bad time. Like, no parent wants their kid to go through a tough time, knowing though that's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't, sorry to
2: interrupt, but I I wouldn't, please, I wouldn't want to put, I wouldn't push my kids into the fucking movie business. Like,
1: (laughs) no, but if they wanted to, or if they wanted to do something, that you, you know, like, I, I often think like if I have a kid who's like, I want to, I want to be a free climber. And I'd be like, you know, like yeah, I would feel yeah. my chest cave in, but I also know, like, it's not, I have to push that aside to be able to know when to say like, but I got to support you because I love you. You know, I want to protect you, but I got to support you at the same time. So, you know, as uh, because you have a, a, a range of ages with your kids. And so how, how have you learned to do that uh, throughout the process of four children? How have I learned to to do? To, 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 to allow them to grow in ways that might be scary because you want to protect them, but knowing like, but you got to let them go out and make their own mistakes. You got to let them go out there and pursue the things that they want to do and not fall into that trap where you're like, oh, maybe you shouldn't do this because it might be scary, you know? Yeah. Well, luckily, none of my
2: kids are like want to be like wingsuit flyers or anything like that. You know, <laughs> um, you, you know, they're 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 not they're they're not they're not risk averse, but they're not particularly, you know, they're, they're you know, they're they're not involved in anything that's, uh, you know, that 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 would scare the shit out of me or, or, or be impossible for yeah. them, you know, and, you know, and the and the nicks and scratches and the bumps and bruises are part of. Life and part of building resilience. And I I really worry about this last 18 months, you know, just because all these kids have been separated from each other. And right. you know, that that really like all of their brains are developing. Like this is it's gonna have some impact impact. You know, it remains to be seen how much, but I can't wait to get them all together again with classmates and you know what I mean? Because uh Because, um, you know, they need to have those experiences and their brains are individuating it, you know, I've got three adolescents, well, two adolescents and a teenager and then a 23 year old and, and, um, you know, who's obviously out of the nest now, but, um, but there's so much happening and, you know, for them at, at this age and, uh, you know, a part of that is to start building their own lives and have their own, their own experiences. And, uh, and as sad as that is, it's, it's totally necessary.
1: I loved something you said. Uh, I think it was on Fallon too, where you, where it's like, yeah, not, you know, I'm getting eye rolls now. Nothing my kids do think is cool. They don't think it's cool anymore, which I think is kind of great in a way because we do work in a weird business. And I often think about like, how am I going to explain to a kid? Like I, this is weird. It's, it's real, but it's not real. I wouldn't take any it too, too seriously. Like, Just sort of, you know, like making sure that they stay grounded, you know, like that always seems like a bit of a challenge in this business too.
2: Yeah. I mean, I mean, I guess more than anything, I want them to see how much I love my job. Like, I think that was a great thing I got from my mom. She was a professor and even though she never had real money, uh, she, she wasn't working for money. She was working because she loved her job and that that's a great thing to see as a kid. And, um, you know, my father, by contrast, never loved his job and, but made enough money, but did it to support us and mm-hmm. kind of, and that was the lesson we got from him, which was, if you have a family, you're going to have to do whatever you have to do to support them. Uh, and it might mean working at a job that you don't love. And, um, and so that was, so I, I, we were kind of getting the same, my brother, I have a one big brother and we were getting the same message from both parents, but in different ways. And Um, And, you know, I think I, you know, I ended up as, you know, going into the film business and he ended up as an artist and, you know, we both ended up doing exactly what we wanted to do and finding a way, way to make a living at it. But I think it was, those, those were the two examples that we, that we had. So I, so, which were great. And, and I always think about that with my own kids. I, you know, as goofy as my job can be sometime, I, I, I I like that they can see how much I love it.
1: Yeah. And I also, I also think one of the great things is that, because this business encourages us to focus on ourselves a lot. <laughs> right. I, what I'm excited about the prospect of kids is you can't focus on yourself. You need to, fo- and, and I feel like that's very grounding and very healthy and very good. And that actually, I'm, I'm looking forward to that.
2: Yeah. I mean, it certainly, it certainly takes the the light and shines it away from you and, and someplace else. There was some, uh, a friend of mine's mother in college explained it as, as when you, you spend your whole life protecting your heart and then you have children and you take your heart and you put it in this other little vessel and they go off into the world and, and you can't, and that's where your heart is and you can't protect. It's like, it's, but, but you, but you have to let them go off into the world. And, um, it's, that's a pretty apt description, I think.
1: Well, I know, um, I just got a note that I, you have to jump to another thing really quickly, but I just want to say about Stillwater that my wife and I loved it my wife is friends with Abby Breslin and they just they did a movie oh, cool. together a, f- a few months ago and and the per- whatever that one outlets the performances are fucking phenomenal like i'm i'm from tennessee which is not technically the midwest but i know that guy i know yeah, that yeah. guy you played yeah. uh, you know people are ta- it's kind of funny that people are like it's like your walk is different and you're and it's like yeah acting it's acting, we, you know that's like, my job <laughs> you don't you don't show up as Matt Damon and say, hey it's me Matt Damon I'm here yes. to save my daughter from it yes. you know but um but it is a to me it's it was a very effortless performance and even and Abby was great and the 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 actor who played the the woman Camille Cotin. yeah the, the Camille Cotin. and phenomenal and the, little, and the the little girl who plays her daughter has yeah. Some of the most nuances, like she's phenomenal.
2: She's great. She's great. Like literally the first day we were shooting with her and she left and I went up to Tom and we'd like, we had wrapped and I sat down with him and we were like, all right, so this kid's pitching a no hitter. Like, how do we (laughs) keep people in the dugout the fuck away from her? (laughs) like, like, (laughs) You know what I mean? Because because you don't want the you don't want the uh, that to get corrupted. Like we were like, how do we keep it light and fun? Some and adult
1: leaning in and go, do this, or you should do this, or giving line readings. Or I've it's seen like, No, it let her do what she's
2: doing. So many times, it's like Aunt Becky, don't talk to her. Like you know, <laughs>
1: <laughs> fucking Aunt Becky again. What? Uh, I just I'm helping. I yeah, I'm know helping.
2: I, do it. Put your hands on your hips. And now you're mad. You know what I mean? Like yeah. So we so we but we were very like. Analytical about we're like, what do we do? Okay, what's this, you know, what tactics do we use to keep this as light and fun as we can for this kid? Like, we gotta keep this. She's intuitively so incredible, right? That we have to, we, we, you know, all it's our job not to fuck this up. She is giving us lightning in a bottle. Like, let's just, you know, like don't tell her.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I just I have to, I don't know. Remember if I've told the story in the podcast before, I probably have, but the exact thing that you're talking about. Remember the old uh, Charlie Brown cartoons where all the kids talked like this? They all had that weird cadence. Uh, I found out it was because there was one uh, producer who gave all the kids the same line readings. And, And of course we associate it so closely with that cartoon, but it is that idea of like, one adult can really just with their Fuck own ideas. Yeah. Just, yeah. Like, just let, just let everyone be, you know, just let everyone be.
2: That's the, that's the thing about keeping that, uh, that window is wide open for ideas. You don't only get good ones, right? So yeah. that's <laughs> director. you're like the arbiter of taste, right? You have to, the best, the best direct, like uh, 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 definition of directing I ever heard was Steven Soderbergh said, it's like, it's like making a mile and a half mosaic from an or a block and a half mosaic from an inch and a half away oh wow right like a giant mural of like these tiny little pieces but being right up against it and so the director has to has to keep the image of the whole thing right to know which color they're putting in like you know at, at every little inch of the thing And so so when those ideas come in, you know that the one where the kid talks like this is bad. And it's like, go back to the producer's tent. You're an energy vampire and you need to stay the fuck away from my actors.
1: Yeah. Keep the window open, but also keep the back door open. So some of those ideas can just blow on freeze right through blow on through. Oh, yeah. Let's just uh, we'll just keep that one moving. That's, That's an idea. Um, I cannot thank you enough for your time. This has been such a wonderful conversation. Um, yeah, I had a ball, man. Thank you. I I really appreciate it, and the movie was fantastic. And I hope you have a pleasant rest of your day. Honestly, I hope you're not doing 96 of these. No, no, no. I got one more, and
2: then I'm and then I'm and then I'm done. It's a pretty it's a light day. Cool, man. Thanks so much. Right. Thanks, Chris. See you, bud.
0: ID 10T scanning complete. Enjoy your burrito.